something is trying to get inside my body, and you want to sleep with me. They give me those shoes, they're mine, give them back to me! Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother. Hey, shouldn't you be folding towels somewhere, sniffing jockstraps? It is time to keep your appointment with the Wicker Man. It rubs the lotion on its skin, or else it gets the hose again. But it certainly will be a nice little surprise when Richard comes home to find a little girl in the house. What have you done to its eyes? I see no manhood between your legs. You're going to meet death now! <laughs> the living dead! They're coming to get you, Barbara. Get away from her, you bitch! It was an asylum! And it was hell! 20 years of pure hell! They're all gonna laugh at you! They're here. To a new world of gods and monsters. Hello, and welcome to Screaming Queens, the queer horror podcast. My name is Jonathan Larkin, and I'm here with, I can't point at you because you're not in the room, so, um, uh, every man for himself. <laughs> Steven, yes, and... Jonathan. Jonathan. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, gosh. Um, so, we are recording remotely um, because we're still on fucking lockdown. So, yeah, here we are. Um, how's everyone doing? Are we all... Are we all um, in the middle of lockdown madness, or is, are we used to it by now? Yeah, personally, I love it. Really? Mm, it's so comforting. No, <laughs> having responsibilities or having to go outside. Yeah, that's right. It's true. Yeah, it's. Uh, I feel like um, we're going to come out of this with like agoraphobia. All of us mm. we're so used to just being in our own little bubble. Um, but yeah, so here we are. We thought we'd uh, come back and give you a brand new episode, even though we can't be in the same room. And, you know, um, th- so there's only three of us today because Martin has had some sort of mishap with his laptop. Today's episode, we are talking about the 1980 horror thriller American Neo Giallo from Brian De Palma, Dressed to Kill. Brian De Palma, the master of the macabre, invites you to a showing of the latest fashion in murder. Dressed to kill Michael Caine, Angie Dickinson, Nancy Allen. Murder made to order by Brian De Palma. Rated R. So, Dressed to Kill, starring Angie Dickinson, Michael Caine, Nancy Allen, Keith David, and Dennis Franz. So, Kate Miller is beautiful but bored. Trapped in a marriage that's gone past its sell-by date, she's in therapy with Dr. Robert Elliott, who tells her to confront this issue, tell her her husband she's sick of his wham-bam specials. But she can't. Instead, she takes the cruise and for men at the New York Met, where she picks up a handsome stranger and goes home with him for some extra marital afternoon delight. But her post-orgasmic chill is cut short, literally, when she's hacked to death in the elevator by an unknown female assailant. Plucky call girl, hooker with a heart, Liz Blake, witnesses the killing, but with no evidence to back up her claims, Liz is in the frame for the murder. Joining forces with Kate's son Peter, Liz must track down the killer before she ends up in jail, or worse, she could end up the next victim of the psychotic Bobby with an eye. There we go, that's the synopsis. So, Stephen, your first time seeing it? Yes, yes. And... What was your initial reaction? Um, mixed. Okay. I think there's some absolutely amazing stuff in there. I just didn't like some of the choices that were made. They're a bit tacky, but I don't know if it's just a product of the time and it looks tacky now. Do you know what I mean? Okay. Um, just weird. Some weird choices in there, and then I I do think we'll probably get into the the problematic side of things, <laughs> which yeah. yeah. 
I'm obviously open to seeing to watch, but I definitely have problems with the subject matter. It's it, yeah. I mean, you know, you, we can come at it from with the with the biggest open mind possible, but um, I think when you say something is a product of its time, this film is definitely one of those. Yeah, things. I mean, it was um, it was still beautiful, like yeah. amazing, fun to watch, and I would watch it again. So that can't yeah. be a bad thing. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. Jonathan Butler, you've seen it before, haven't you? Yeah, I've seen it a few times. Love it. It's probably his best looking film. There's so many, so many good like the techniques that he uh, that he likes to use. You get a lot of that in here. A lot of the deep focus shots. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's like it's like deep focus porn. Isn't yeah, it? it's pretty film. much. So is that where you get both of them in this? Yeah, it's where like you get different two... foreground and background in. Yeah, you get two points in focus at the same time. So, but you have to have a part of the screen yeah. focus. So you get like a little, you get like a, a misty, foggy bit in the screen. But I think this. Scene where she's on where she's on the train, looking at people getting on the train. I think that's like the best example of it. Like looking in both directions, and you've got the train guards and her in focus. And yeah, looking looking in either direction. I didn't pick up on it. Oh, it's that's amazing that scene. Yeah. My favorite bit of deep focus, I think, is the bit where where um, Liz and Bobby turn to screen oh, at the same time. Fucking amazing. Oh yeah, that's so good. I absolutely love it. It's so, I, so stylish. I really um, a little squeal noise when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> I did squeal at a point as well, but it wasn't that bad. <laughs> okay, okay. I look forward to finding out what made you squeal. Uh, <laughs> so um, the film opens with the fabulous Pino Donaggio score, uh, which is one of my favorite film scores ever. I feel, I feel like it's just so cinematic and classic. It's got that classic sort of Saturday Night Film vibe to it, if you know what I mean. Yeah, definitely. It is a gorgeous soundtrack. Um, and it opens with um, Kate Miller. So she's played by the very glamorous middle-aged actress Angie Dickinson. I say middle-aged. I'm not trying to make a point of her age, but I just want to make a point of the fact that she is that age and she's she's amazing. She's gorgeous and sexy and, and wonderful. She is um, She's like amazing. Uh, I've got a real soft spot for Angie Dickinson because as a Golden Girls fan, um, uh, Blanche in the Golden Girls always tells people that she's Angie Dickinson's body double. <laughs> in this film? Um, yeah. <laughs> well, just yeah. in general. Just... <laughs> and she likes to, yeah, sometimes she says, ah, I miss Angie Dickinson. Um, so yeah, it just makes me laugh. So we get, she's in the shower. It's all very soft focus. A uh, steamy Vaseline screen, and we get loads of like close ups on her tits and a fanny, but they are all uh, body doubles. Is um, the boobs yeah. a body double as well? So you, when you see, obviously, you see her standing in full frame, um, and you see a little bit of side boob. That that's obviously her boob. But when when it cuts to close ups on anything on her body, it's not her. Okay, I was gonna say uh, areolas are like the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Her areolas. Yeah, like they were perfect. <laughs> yeah. Last thing, yeah. <laughs> Ariola Grande. <laughs> Fantastic. Um so in this scene, so she's sort of in the she's in the shower. I love all of those sort of bits where she's sort of looking into camera whilst whilst the water's trickled out of her mouth and, and all that. And it, it's a shame Martin isn't here because I would have told him that it makes me think that's what he does when he's in the shower. <laughs> um I did think in fact that there was bits where, like, it, she was trying to be all alluring in the shower, but her hair was just getting matted in the water. Yeah. We're like, that's not sexy. It's, yeah, yeah, you can see she was really struggling there. Um, 
so her husband is um like shaving at the at the sink and she's in the shower and then um next thing um a guy appears from behind her um and grabs her uh, first of all it's, it appears to be quite sexy but then it becomes more aggressive and threatening and suddenly his hands are like around and over her mouth and doesn't he like pick her up by the fanny yeah yeah it kind of plunks it on i think yeah yeah uh so it all becomes sinister and she's screaming for help and then suddenly it cuts to her in bed doesn't it when whilst she's having sex with her husband mm. um, and he's sort of pounding away at her while she's fantasizing <laughs> about being strangled in the shower <laughs> it is weird isn't it to wake up that um the rape scene was a lot more sexy than the bedroom <laughs> scene <laughs> Yeah. But it, it yeah. it's a deliberate choice, surely, because yeah. it's shot that way. Yeah, it's sort and of they're making a point, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sort of delving into her psyche, isn't it? Of she's having all these sort of wild fantasies just to get herself there because her husband's not satisfying her. Basically, um, she's a bored housewife, and we see that straight straight up. Um, mm. She's clearly not very happy, but she's got this nice little relationship with her son, hasn't she, um, Peter, who's like the nerd, who's doing all kinds of stuff. I don't really understand what it is he's doing with binary numbers. Is it? Yeah, I don't think... Basic computer? Yeah, I don't think anyone really does point on the um, the making of where the, the actor goes in to ask Brian De Palma what does any of this mean, and he's just like, oh, I don't know, just, just, just play, just act, it's fine. So they just make yeah. science bullshit. It doesn't really mean anything. So she goes off to therapy with uh, Dr. Elliot, who's played by Michael Caine. Um, and you, uh, when she gets there, you sort of get the impression she's been going for a while. They're sort of very comfortable with each other's company, aren't they? There's lots mm-hmm. of banter going on. Um, and she's sort of talking about She's talking about her husband giving her the Wham Bam special this morning. And so she's angry at him because of that. Um, but they've got like quite a. I, I think there's sort of a flirty kind of relationship going on here. She's she's flirting away with him, isn't she? Yeah. It is Michael Caine, though. I'd flirt with him. Would well, yeah, But Ben said, Ben asked me this while we were watching it. He was like, "Do you do you find Michael Caine attractive?" And I thought, "No, I don't really." But I could see why. I find him very charming him. more than anything. Apparently, he's really funny in real life. When you meet him, apparently, on yeah, oh, really. Andy Dickinson said she was just attracted to him because he was just so funny. One of the special features, the young lad said he's one of the most underrated actors ever. And I was like, I don't think he's underrated. Mm. I think we kind of know Michael Caine is a great actor. I think underrated, I, I, I sort of know what he means because Michael Caine, I feel like he's sort of seen as like, um, uh, he is a great actor, but he's seen more as like, oh, he's a, he's a reliably good as opposed yeah. to, oh my God, he's amazing in everything that he does. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I can, I've got yeah, a good example of that. This film. I never think yeah. of the film as a Michael Caine film. I always think of it as a yeah. a, a Nancy Allen film. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Well, maybe I'm just yeah, a I... bit more of a Michael Caine fan than a book, because I always like him whenever he's in anything. I really like him. Michael Caine stan, though. Yeah. Um, uh, so she, she basically, she's flirting with him, and she says, do you find me attractive? And when she does, he looks at his reflection in the mirror, doesn't he? And there's like a little moment where bit of foreshadowing going on when uh, she asks if she asks if he would sleep with her um and he says obviously he says yes but i'm married and i wouldn't want to jeopardize my marriage um or does he say that's an anti later on yeah it's, it's the exact same two reasons yeah yeah um so she's supposed to be going to meet her is it a mother or a mother-in-law for lunch 
Um, but on the but before that, she's going to the the New York Met Gallery to have a little wander about as you do. Um, and this is this is such an interesting scene, isn't it? Because she's essentially she's cruising. Mm. <laughs> she's uh, we get to watch her sort of sitting there bored making the the shopping list and um, pick up the turkey. Um, <laughs> pick up and, turkey. Uh, next thing. Uh, <laughs> Pick up Turkey. The next thing, a handsome stranger sits down next to her and gets her attention. Uh, and then it becomes like a bit of a cat and mouse game between the two of them, doesn't it? Yeah, which is really fun. Yeah. And it, it just has some really interesting shots. The bit where that, um, she's looking in between the two rooms and the camera yeah. like goes from one room to the other with the wall in between. It's just so cool. Yeah, mm. it's fabulous. Um. So they're having a bit of a cruisy cat and mouse thing where like she'll walk away and then he'll follow and then then he'll walk away and she'll follow. Um but whatever she but then when he um he puts his hands on her shoulder, she completely sort of bottles out, doesn't she? She she shits herself a little bit and she's like, Oh no, no, no. Um This well, is actually I... where I gasped earlier on. Yeah. Um mm-hmm. when she drops the glove to the floor earlier on yeah. and she's um she stands up and goes to leave and she spins on her stilettos. And I was yeah. just like, yes, bitch. <laughs> that was stunning. Like, Yeah, yeah, definitely. She's fabulous. She looks fabulous as well, doesn't she? That white, the white dress and oh, the, white uh, everything. the white gloves and everything. She just looks fabulous. Um, so apparently um, the original script, the, uh, the original version of the scene, the script called for the voiceover narrative. Uh, narration over over this bit, so you could you could hear what she was thinking. So it'd be like you know who's he and what's he doing and all that kind oh, of stuff. No. But I know I know. But once once they filmed it um, and saw the way it looked, with, especially with the music, they realised that they didn't need to use any of that. And I think this is the the, the music tells the story with yeah. the visuals perfectly here. kind of changes the entire scene because I don't think if you did have that score over the top this would have, it felt tense mm-hmm. and exciting and it just wouldn't have had anything like that if there was no sound no it's true yeah go on John and yeah I was gonna say it's uh, I love the, the like the progression of the shots it's like he's she sees the uh, like the security guard is like paving a woman who stood there and then he's looking at the couple and then he sees like the old like the old couple who've got a kid it's like the different stages of a relationship. You know, it's like the, the Oh yeah. It's pervy and flirty. 
and then the the couple are all over each other, and then by the time they're older and married and got a kid, it's just kind of like humdrum, and they're, they're chasing after the kids and the kids running away. So she's just seeing like the progression of, mm-hmm. and she's saying, you know, this is the stage I'm at now. But I'm looking looking for random men in a museum. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I never even thought. I never even saw it like that. I just saw. I sort of look at the family, like family set up and that. Um, I'm, I saw the sort of sadness in her eyes when she's doing that, but I never, I never saw the stages of the progression. That's really that's, that's what it looked like to me. I mean, um, I don't know that, but that's well, I took. Yeah. No, but it makes sense. What you're so, yeah. Totally, yeah, totally. Um, so yeah, uh, Cat and Mouse. The music ramps up until it's like operatic climax. Uh, really, really exciting. And then she, when she goes out. So she she's lost one glove already because he's got it. And then when she goes out of the Met, she's walking down those steps and she throws the other glove away because she thinks, well, if I haven't got a pair, then it doesn't really work. But then just before she leaves, next thing she sees, uh, the guy is dangling her other glove out of the back of a taxi. Um, and this is our first moment where we see Bobby as well. Does everyone spot her? Yeah, when it, when it pans across the crowd, shop past like yeah. stands, you see Bobby. In the crowd, yeah, yeah. I do actually love sorry to go back a little bit when she actually, um, you know, when the hand goes on her shoulder and then it, she realizes what it is, and then it's yeah. like a little flashback bubble next to her. Head she's remembering, she sees the glove on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, this is this is the bit that I have a problem with. I think that the flashbacks of her remembering things are just so tacky. Okay, bit obvious. It's tacky as hell. Oh, I like it. Yeah, it doesn't bother me because, yeah, I think it feels like um, it's got that sort of classic old Hollywood vibe to it. It's so overly stylized. It's, bit, it's like very whimsical, I suppose, but yeah, I don't know. I, I think that's just something that I feel like ages, ages it a bit, whereas everything mm. else feels timeless. Yeah, yeah. Um. What annoys me is that she gets she she sees that the other glove still exists and she still leaves her other glove on the on the on the set. Yeah. Why didn't she go back and pick it up? They they were they were cheap gloves. She still no. got. I don't think she expected to be dragged into the taxi. That's true. He does he does drag her in there. What were you saying, John? She she apparently Angie Dickinson's apparently still got those gloves. Oh, she really? Yeah. She, uh, <laughs> she gets them out on the. She made that for it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That's the only the only souvenir she's got left of the film is those gloves. Because she loved them that much. Oh wow. The last time we the last time me and Ben were in New York, we recreated the scene on the steps and I dropped a glove and he took a photograph of it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> didn't, didn't look quite the same with me black uh, Primark gloves, but there you go. Um so she gets into the back of the taxi. Well he drags her into the back of the taxi, and then we have some sexy, fun, sexy time in the back of the cab. Um, where he basically pulls the knickers off and um, goes down on her in the taxi, and um, she's got this like the voiceover of the, uh, you know the, um, the sexy noises, the gasps and the moans and stuff, and it they build and builds into a into a crescendo of an orgasm mixed with the honking horn of the t- <laughs> of the taxi. It's brilliant. <laughs> That's great sound design. I love the disapproving look of the taxi man as well as he's readjusting his mirror. <laughs> Yeah, and yeah, kind of like uh, half watching, but half being like, <sighs> "Here we go again." You just know a New York cabbie has seen so much in those on, on the taxi, You know, this isn't anything new. I uh, mean, yeah. she give him an extra like big tip for that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so 
she uh, goes home for a bit of afternoon delight with this guy and they have sex, which we don't see. We sort of cut straight to, to after the fact and he, they're both the post-coitally snoring away in bed. So she sort of gets up and she's sort of trying to slip away. And then she realises um, she's done something that we've all done and she's left her knickers in the back of the New York taxi. Um, in another handy flashback. In another handy flashback, yes. I love the um, clock. He's so got she's, she, yeah. And um, yeah. props to her that her knickers match her entire outfit. Oh yeah, she thought about that. Classy. She thought about... Classy. It's, it's almost like she dressed. Um, she dressed to go out and pull a guy rather than go and meet her mother for lunch. <laughs> um, she uh, so she sits down to write him a note, and as we get some nice sort of vulnerability from the characters, don't we? When we see that she's sort of she starts writing a note that's quite sort of gushing, but then pulls back a little bit. Mm. And doesn't want, she doesn't want to reveal too much at once, but I think I think uh, I think what we see here is that this sort of behaviour isn't really what she does all the time. We see that she's yeah. uh, she's quite um, she's thrilled by it. She's guilty, uh, but she is quite a vulnerable person. I think you know we get that from from just just from her face. She doesn't even have to say anything. Mm. So she leaves them a note, and then uh, as she goes into his desk drawer, <laughs> she finds this real sting in the fucking tail, isn't it? Uh, she finds a letter from the Department of Health basically telling him that he's got venereal disease. It's like, Syphilis well, and gonorrhea. Syphilis and gonorrhea. Oh, dear. Um, and you just, you're just mortified for her. Um, but you, you just when she thinks that that's uh, the worst her day is going to get, things get a whole lot worse. When she goes to, um, she goes out. So she she does get away sort of scot-free, doesn't she? She's about to leave with everything, her life still intact, but then realises she left a wedding ring upstairs. Mm. Yeah. Um, do you like the bit with the little girl judging her? Yeah. <laughs> I loved it. Brilliant. I was like this fucking bitchy devil child. <laughs> she looks evil, that kid. Yeah. Um, she's got that sort of, uh, you know, when when you when you know you've done something naughty and a stranger looks at you in the street and they sort of see right through you and it plays on all of your guilt. That, that's what happens. Yeah. Um. So up she goes back to get the wedding ring, and then as she goes to leave the elevator, Bobby appears in the way. Blocks her escape and takes out a straight razor and goes for it, hammer and tongue. I like that um, the scene as Bobby walks in and the door shut behind. Yeah, like, it feels very encroaching. It's horrible. And, like, there's like no escape kind of thing. It's like she towers over it, isn't it? Really, she, you know, does she corners her? What do you think about the actual killing? The the, the scene itself, John. Oh, it's great! I love it. That first shot with the uh, the, the hands, the slash through the hands. Oh, gross! Oh, it's yeah. effective though. Cause you, you yeah, would, I think that's worse. Yeah, you would obviously naturally you're gonna put the hands up to defend yourself, but just seeing oh that part of your hands that'd be so painful to get slashed. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like um, yeah, well, yeah. There's quite a lot, didn't they? On the um, I know one of the special features on that Arrow Blu-ray I've got is um. Comparisons of the different versions, and the, if you see the yeah, I watched that. Yeah, the the killing in the network version is just like the tamest thing you've ever seen. Um, yeah, you don't see any of it. Yeah, it's obviously practically nothing. And then the uh, but the unrated one, the full one on there is brutal. Getting hacked. 
Yeah. The way with straight razor. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. Very jello as well. I mean, we'll talk about the jello links after we've talked about the film, but this is one of the this is this the the effects in this scene make me think of like old school seventies jello and Lucio Fulci and that kind of stuff. Um, I think the best bit of this for me is even though I don't get away there because it doesn't make any sense, but seeing it through that mirror, that like shop mirror. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. seeing the violence kind of indirectly is just it's like a much more interesting way to shoot it than just to show it straight up all the time. Yeah, you'd see it from all angles, really, don't you? Um, lots of close-ups on her eyes as well, as it happens to her, which is very um, Janet Lee and Psycho as well. Mm. Um, so she's murdered horribly in the elevator, and then uh, we cut to, we're introduced to Liz, who is the, um, the, the plucky prostitute, who is in the middle of chatting with one of her clients about stocks and shares. Um, um, and she's so, she's dressed as if she's come from a board meeting as well. <laughs> um, and uh, Liz opens the elevator to go in and, and finds um, Kate on the floor dying, and you know, asks a scream of help, reaching for her hand, and the 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 client shits himself and runs away. So. Liz tries goes to help. Yeah, it's all sorts of shots and super slow motion, mm. isn't it? A little bit like Carrie, mm. where you get lots of close-ups on Liz's face as she realizes what's happening. She goes like that split second thing where she goes to reach out to help her. Um and is within like spitting distance of Bobby with the with the straight razor. Yeah, yeah and then like the light gleams on her eyes and she sees yeah. it in the mirror. Yeah. Because it's um, like at the last second she's about to reach through and then she spots the mirror, doesn't she? She spots like that. Yeah, I don't even what would you even call that? That special type of mirror where you can let you see everything. So at the last second she spots that. And I just pulls the hand back. It's one of those shop mirrors, isn't it, to see if yeah. someone's robbing? Yeah. yeah, it's like an old school shop mirror, or like on the old, like on the buses as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So she's, yeah. So we realise that Liz is in very real danger as well of getting killed by Bobby, but she sort of pulls out at the last minute. Um, <laughs> Bobby drops the razor and Liz does Liz does the most logical thing and picks up the murder weapon. Um, and, and then runs out of fucking yes, <laughs> cleaner. <laughs> cleaner. Cleaner sees what she sees sort of with the bloody razor and starts screaming, terrified of Liz, and Liz runs at her, sort of asking for help. But it doesn't really come across that way, does it? And she, uh, yeah, so she runs off for help. And like the last shot of the segment is the lift doors trying to close on poor Kate's dead arm. <laughs> Which is great. I like the brutalness of it just slamming it in again yeah. and again and again. Oh, no. It's a bit like a husband at the beginning, isn't it, really? <laughs> uh, leads it up to the murder. There's a really eerie moment, isn't there, where when, when Kate's about to get in the lift, you see the fire escape door and you see Bobby's face peering through the little window in the door. There's lots of those little moments where Bobby's peering through from, from the corner of the screen. Oh, yeah. Like yeah. The, one on the, train. the one on the train might be the best, I think. Love that one. Oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, it's this. All, this is all very Hitchcock as well, isn't it? It's that kind of. You've got the shock of the uh, protagonist being killed off halfway through the film. You've got you know the shocking death scene, and then you've got the sort of the the, the plucky heroine who's in the wrong place at the wrong time, who ends up like stuck with the murder weapon and possibly in the frame for the killing. It's all there's loads of Hitchcock stuff in there, all thrown in. Yeah, it is. Um, Go on. 
it's a little bit derivative. Like I just think it's a little bit too on the ball at times. You you add a lot of style to it, but it is pretty much the same story. And a lot of psycho. Yeah, it's a lot of beats from Psycho at least. Yeah, it does. It pays homage to Psycho in a, in a massive way, doesn't it? But I suppose it's about what he brings to it in addition to that. I mean, I don't, I don't go in for like people call him a hack and that he just copies Hitchcock. And I think, I think he's, he's far too talented to be. There's definitely more to it than that. Fucking hell. Yeah, um, it's just heavy inspiration. Yeah, big time. And then we get to, we hear Doctor, we see Doctor Elliot getting a answer phone message from Bobby. Don't we saying stuff about I'm a girl chopped in a man's body? Don't make me be a bad girl again. And I borrowed your razor. So, so it would be pieced together that whoever did this must be one of Doctor Elliot's other clients. Oh well. You would think that, except he looks in the mirror again. Well, yeah, but, you know. See, do you think, (laughs) was this shocking at the time, that that reveal? Because I don't think it could be any more heavy-handed that it was him. Um, I'm not sure. I'm I'm, I'm wondering if it's just because this kind of looking into the mirror might have been quite new back then. Mm, Whereas now, that cinematic language is well-established if somebody's looking into a mirror. Weirdly, yeah, especially, there's something else yeah. going on. Yeah, there's something sinister about them. What do you think, John? Do you think that people were shocked at the time when they found out it was him? Possibly, yeah, because I suppose this was before... I mean, if you've seen other Brian De Palma films, doesn't, doesn't he use that same kind of twist in a few other things? Isn't there... Is it Dress to Kill? Not Dress to Kill. This is the film tour, oh, fuck's sake. Um, body double- <laughs> <laughs> I think he does use it in that, yeah. <laughs> And, uh, is it body double where been, someone's been chased through a subway and they think it's being chased by a man, but it's like someone with a latex mask, isn't it? It's actually a woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he's using. Uh, no, it's it's not a woman. No, it's it's the, it's the woman's husband behind the latex mask. Oh, is it? Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think people might. Have, I think people would have been shocked. Yeah, yeah, because I think. Also, we've seen so many of these films and so many like Jolly as well, where you know you you sort of you, you're looking for these things more. Where I think people were watching this thing, and that's Michael Caine. He must be the hero of the film. He's probably yeah. going to come in and save them at the last minute. I just think it aged in a way that you can kind of to a modern audience, it was very obvious. But I'm not. I don't think it would be the same back then. So it just kind of takes away the shock element. So we meet Detective Marino, played by Dennis Franz, who uh, he's the hard-boiled New York cop in his brown leather jacket. Um, and he's grilling Dr. Elliot whilst Peter's sitting outside with his bugging device. So he's listening in on the details of his mother's murder. He finds out all about it. He finds all about it. He finds out that the girl, the pretty girl in the next room who's being interviewed is the girl who found his mum's body. He finds out that she was having hookups in the in the afternoon with some stranger behind his stepdad's back so basically this this poor lad's here and all the stuff that you know the son really doesn't have to (laughs) shouldn't have to listen to yeah i think the policeman is actually the worst character in this entire film (laughs) in what way like i just think he's reprehensible he's hot yeah he is he's like he's he's proper victim blaming he yeah like he says do you think she wanted to die 
she was like looking to die yeah, because she went off and had yeah, sex. That's yeah. really vicious. Yeah, yeah. There's a great and line. Then... Isn't there? What is it? What is the line he says? There's, there's, a million, there's a million ways to die in this city. Yeah, but you're not a psycho. You do know some, though, don't you, Doc? Yes, of course. I do some work at Bellevue. Hey, uh, could she have met one of these nuts at your office? I mean, some kind of weirdo she could have turned on that might have followed her? The term we use, Detective Marino, is not weirdo, but a person suffering from emotional dysfunction and a problem of maladaption. And they never come to my office. Are you sure? How about a new patient? Absolutely not. <laughs> He's the sort of voice, isn't he? He's the voice of that sort of that sort of uh, misogynist straight male American nineteen eighty attitude you know it must be her fault she was a slut she went i was asking for it he he's got that he is the voice of that it's completely believable Um, it's very believable and he's kind of what the film was accused of as well so lots of the lots of the backlash against the film is about it being misogynist and stuff and i feel like he he represents that but um the film itself doesn't because you get dr elliot's strongly defending Kate's on it, isn't he? Now that she's dead, he's say, he's basically saying, unequ- you know, unequivocally, no, this isn't her fault. She didn't go out looking for this to happen to her. Yeah, you can have a character who is bad and who does these things. Those elements are definitely in the film, but yeah, I'm not yeah. sure they paint it in a good way. Like, mm. apart from, I don't think he should have got like this bit of redemption at the end because I think that yeah. kind of muddies the water. Yeah. Yeah, but I love the bit with him. So when he when he's grilling Liz as well, and he says, "Let's face it, you're a whore. You're a part having you whore, but you're still a whore." Yeah, <laughs> yeah but that's life goals. <laughs> I know. I say it like it's a bad thing. It's so uh, it's so funny as well because she's kind of she's not demure or anything, but she is sort of on the back foot. But the minute that he starts talking to her like that, she just drops all all pretense and she's like, "Fuck you." <laughs> I didn't actually notice that she was a whore until this point. <laughs> I don't yeah. think whore. Uh, she's a prostitute. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's his language, not mine. Yeah, yeah. She's sort of, I love, I, I love Liz. I think she's sort of, she's defiant but sweet at the same time. Mm. You know, she never comes across as weak in any way. I think she's sort of, she's a, she's likes to stick two fingers up to No, I like her. Yeah, she's she's great. Um, the interesting thing. Obviously, on... that she's very. Sorry, go on. Mm-hmm. No, go on. I was going to say there's an interesting thing on uh, the making of, and when they speak to Nancy Allen and Anna Franz, and they both say that some of their favorite scenes was them two together because that dialogue they really loved that dialogue because they you know in films at that time you didn't really get to do dialogue like that you know the proper swearing and talking like that you, you said it was uncommon so they were. Pleased to be able to do that. <laughs> well, lots of the language that they use in this film is shocking. Like they, they say "fuck" every two minutes. They say "cock" quite a lot as well. Um, the, it, it is quite. It's it's a real adult film. Mm. This um, the language stands out. I think 
Um, we see that straight away. She's she's very resourceful, don't we? Because he basically says you need to find that client, otherwise it's your ass on the line. So we see her sort of going off, calling people, trying to find out the identity of this client. So we see that she's she's just, you know she's not going to sit uh, sit back and let this happen to her. Basically, she's not a pushover. I think she's great. I think she's so good. And I was shocked to find out that Nancy Allen was nominated for the Golden Raspberry Award for this film. Oh, no. that's, that's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. But at the same time, though, uh, uh, by the same token, she was also nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Newcomer as well. Yeah, so, which is much, know. much more fitting. She did not yeah. deserve that. No, she's so good. I love her anyway. She's one of my favourite actresses from the 80s. I loved her in Carrie. She was so bad in Carrie. Such a cunt. She's great. Um, so is this the bit where we where we get to see the Donahue clip? Uh, you see the kids' weird drawings first, where he's and he sets up the um the camera. Oh yeah, yes, the yes. very very we obvious camera. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah. He sets up a sort of hidden camera, doesn't he, outside of Doctor Elliot's office? Because he's heard he's overheard by bugging the cops' office that um uh, that there's a chance that the killer is one of Dr. Elliot's clients. So he sets up, he sets up the hidden camera and then we get Liz. Um, basically, Liz is trying to get some work and also at the same time, we see Dr. Elliot watching Donahue and there's like this split screen moment, isn't there, between the two characters? Yeah. Which I, th- I didn't get the choice on the split screen though. I quite liked it. What did you think of the split screen here, John? What point was it again? Sorry. So when he's watching Donahue and Liz is getting like made up for a night out to go and meet a client. Yeah, no, I like it. I think De Palma does does that quite a bit, doesn't he? The the whole split screen shot that they do yeah. in uh, Phantom of the Paradise as well. It's, it's great in that. Yeah, I love it. I think. Yeah, and Harry as well. He uses the techniques that a lot of actors, a lot of uh, directors, even then, were had forgot about and weren't using. You know, going back to like. Awesome Wells and the 40s and 50s. So I like this. That's one of the reasons I like the Palmer. He uses these techniques that no one else really used. Even like Deep Focus. He was pretty much the only one really still. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, it's just, I don't get the two scenes together. Like, I don't think they speak about each other. Whereas I like when somebody does that, but the two scenes are related. Well, I, I saw it as, um, so Dr. Elliot's watching Donahue and he's seeing a version of himself reflected back at him, isn't he? Because the trans woman is on Donahue and we see he's he's got a mirror as well. He's looking in the mirror as he watches Donahue. And at the same time, Liz is looking in the mirror as she puts her makeup uh, on okay. to go out. So you got that okay. kind of thing. And then also, I feel like the trans woman on Donahue is kind of defending her her herself. She's defending her sexuality, um, and you're saying this is who I am, and I'm 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 not ashamed of that. Whilst at the same time, you've got Liz who's putting on her war paint to go out and meet a client mm. and be a sex worker. That she's not, and she's not ashamed of that. So I, you know, I kind of got that from it. Is this the real scene that kind of like inspired? Like this is a real yeah. show, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's a clip from Donahue from 1970. Because yeah. I read that he um, drew inspiration after seeing that. Yeah, yeah, he did. I've well, Donahue completely misunderstood it, but yeah. <laughs> oh well, yeah, yeah, but it well, he he sort of came at it from it with a very mercenary view, didn't he? Because he basically saw it as, wow, this is a great idea for a story, as opposed to this is a great idea for a 
um, sensitively handled <laughs> telling of somebody, yeah. you know, of sexuality. He, he didn't say it that way. He just he just saw it as wow, this I've got a great idea for a story. Looking at this, um, so Liz goes out in her wonderful indigo purple outfit, which I always associate with this film. Amazing. Yeah, yeah the, the, the deep purple film, one, like the fair coat yeah, and the dress, lovely. Stunning. Whenever I think of this film, I just think of her getting chased. So this set piece, this whole you know big long chase set piece where she's first of all in the taxi and then she's in the subway. I just love this whole section of the film. It's so exciting. Yeah, I love when she shows up at the man's house and he's shocked because she's so pretty. Yeah, I like want to be that good of a hooker that like <laughs> like you got really a hooker. Well, she's a Park Avenue whore. Remember? Yeah, come here. Um, <laughs> Make them so. Uh, <laughs> um so she I love when she she knows she's being stalked by Bobby so she she tells the taxi to try and lose her. I think that's really cool. The taxi driver and and he's kind of flirting with her a little bit. Oh yeah. I'll come back to it later, but we know at the end that it's not Bobby. Ah, when I was watching this, I was like, Oh, he's a bit ghost like, isn't he? He's just appearing everywhere and then later on we found out it's not. And I'm like, Oh, that actually makes the film a lot better. <laughs> Which? What do you mean? Because there's bits that don't line up, like where she, obviously Bobby gets knocked out by the car door. Yeah. But then just happens to be there later on. Oh, and I'm yeah, like, I don't yeah. really get it. But once you bring in that final act twist, once it makes realize, more sense. Totally, yeah. Yeah. So that cabbie, I quite fancy that cabbie. Yeah. And he he's also um in Friday the thirteenth part two. He's the boy who gets skewered with his girlfriend in the kill that's copied from Bay of Blood. Wow. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's him. Um, so, yeah, the cabbie takes her to a subway station and she goes, she makes a run for it. But then when she gets to her subway stop by her apartment, she sees Bobby is is waiting for her there. So that's the moment, isn't it? With it is the, the, shot, um, that's the, amazing. the focus. Just brilliant. With the big turn to camera, yeah. Kind of yeah. Beautiful. It's just stunning. And then that becomes a bigger chase then. So it's back down to the subway um, where she's <laughs> she finds herself uh, harassed by some evil, scary black man. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. <laughs> this is this is just like getting really <laughs> dodgy. Uh, this is product of 1980. That's, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> My problem with this is that the, she fucking started it. Why did she go over to them and then walk backwards into them quite blatantly knowing they were there. But they do sort of overreact. She's just a woman stood on a stood on a she uh, walked a... backwards into them. Yeah, but she I'm was gonna... antagonizing. She but she wasn't though. She stood at the end of a platform, backed into one of them by accident, and then he said, I'm gonna break your fucking ass. I mean, who's in the wrong there? <laughs> I mean <laughs> I'm not defending their actions. I think they're and also stereotypes. <laughs> stereotypes yeah. bad anyway, but like yeah. I'm just saying she kinda like she, she wasn't playing oh, can you hear me? Yeah, you went off. Um I'm not saying that it um their actions were justified, they were obviously wrong and they were bad stereotypes. But it was just more like what was she thinking? Like how else did she think that going right over to them was gonna end? Well, she went to the, she went to the furthest points of the platform to get away from being stalked, didn't she? I think that's what that was what she was thinking. My the thing that disturbs me the most about this scene is the music that they're listening to on the Ghetto Blaster. They would not be listening to that really naff disco. Yeah, no, well, I think... <laughs> disco was dead in nineteen eighty. Uh, yeah, yeah, totally. Um, 
totally. I mean, if it was me and Steven stood there in our crop tops, then we would be listening to it, but not those boys. Definitely not those boys. <laughs> um, uh, I love where they chased her, they chased her along the platform, and it's sort of slowed down a little bit. Mm. It's like real old fashioned Hitchcock looking chase. Mm. Um, and then you get that deep focus that you love, John. Yeah, it's it's she looks left. It's like the, the hair on the train guard about looking for people getting on the train, and then as they look right, yeah, yeah. the 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 guys on the train get on to the left, and then as and then as yeah. looks, Bobby gets onto the right. It's just brilliant, Joss. So good. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. fabulous. It's really well and then, done. And then the really creepy—I love the, the the really creepy moment on the train as well. So where it pans across from here to the garden back again, and Bobby's face is in the yeah. oh, between the cars. It's great. I didn't get the animosity with the cop either, though. Yeah, I, th- I feel like she just sort of runs into trouble all the time because she's a she's a prostitute as well. I think she's just got a bit of a mouth on her, and she doesn't. Yeah, she's she never senses. Well, it. I suppose it's they had to have some reason as well to have that cool shot in there, so I'll forgive that. Yeah, totally. So then the cop gets off, but the um the evil, scary, uh, threatening black men get on, and they they chase her through the through the train carriage. So this is also this is another amazing shot. I love the bit where she's running through the train carriage, and they're chasing her. I think it just looks so cool. The purple feathers, the purple fur, mm. amazing. Um, and, and it is scary. Hides. It's scary. It's genuinely scary. She hides between carriages and then suddenly, shock horror, Bobby appears from behind her with black leather glove over her mouth and the straight razor poised to kill her. But she's saved right at the last minute by Peter. By Moose. By Moose of some sort, yeah. <laughs> Mason um, or Moose? No, it is Mace, but it? it just looks like Moose. Mace doesn't look like there are but there's this blonde that's been following oh forget it
Um, I love so I I love the relationship with her and Peter because I love the fact that she's a sex worker, he's a young boy, but there's no there's no there's nothing in it is about sex. It's about her being she's quite protective. He protects mm. her, but she's sort of she's got a bit of a maternal vibe with him as well, big sisterly vibe. Is this is from? Because they said that the um, the script was meant to be a younger man, wasn't it? Like it was meant to be a kid. Uh, yeah, it's like it's ten or eleven. Um, yeah, and then uh, he aged her up because they wanted that actor because they just couldn't find anyone. Right. And he'd worked with them before, and he uh, kept the dialogue exactly the same. Out <laughs> makes sense then. Which is why it's not <laughs> quite as yeah creepy as it probably would have been if they'd done it. Yeah, yeah. Um. So was anyone else here surprised by the high class call girl's choice of pajamas? I didn't even notice them, which says enough. <laughs> She's just got like these plain. They look like the pajamas from Prisoner Cell Block H, like See, plain white and green stripes. I wasn't sure whether they were had they gone to pieces or had they gone to hers because I assume that she just put on like mum's pajamas. It is pieces mum's pajamas. Well, yeah, well, but definitely in her flat because yeah. she's showing them her artwork and stuff like that. Maybe they're just they're non-business clothes. It's like uh, you know, maybe no, no, or maybe not, we're seeing behind the curtain. Maybe, yeah. Maybe, you know, it's like it's not always it's not all high glam if you're a high class hooker, you know. It's, I like to put my really dowdy pajamas on and sit and watch. Yeah, you've got, uh, a, you've got a, maybe it's ca- casual Friday. <laughs> casual Friday. Um so Peter has narrowed it down to being one of Dr. Elliot's clients and he tells he tells her all about his plan to try and to try and find out who it is. So she goes to she goes to Marino, doesn't she? The copper, and um, and he basically says, in you know between the lines, he says she should go and break in. <laughs> he says that like, it'll take ages to get a warrant. You haven't got that amount of time, so basically you need to go and break in and look at his address book, and see who, who his last client was before, before the murder attempt. I, I like the when he says, um, "I hope you're a better hooker than you are a detective." Yeah, yeah, I like that. Good line. Um, and in between this, we get to see Dr. Elliot, don't we, going to Bellevue Mental Hospital, mm. where he talks about Bobby, and he, he's talked to Dr. Le- Levy, I think, and he's yeah. talking about Bobby and how she's dangerous and stuff, um, which that scene is just so interesting to watch once you've already known the twist as well. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, quite quickly we, we sort of get towards the climax quite quickly. The film sort of moves long, and uh, Liz goes to see Doctor Elliot to basically seduce her way in, doesn't she? To to get to see his client book. Yeah. And um, she tries to seduce him by talking about her sexual fantasy slash nightmare about a big man with big bulge in his pants, um, who's basically putting a blade against her fanny. I think it's um. I think it is cool that they mirror the conversation that they had at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, like, definitely. I think that makes it a lot more interesting. Yeah. I like it. She's oh. really direct, and I love when she asks if she can take her, um, her coat off. Yeah, and you just know there's not going to be much clothing on, on underneath mm-hmm. the coat as well. John, what was your reaction to her <laughs> uh, negligee? Uh, it was very good. I, I enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> was there a, a growing bulge oh, in your pants as well? <laughs> it's just so dirty. Yeah, the way she says it's dirty is great. I love. There was another great line. 
back and forth and it's like I'm a doctor I fucked a lot of them I'm married I fucked a lot of them too <laughs> now what makes you such an expert because I'm a hooker ah and I've done most of the bad things you just read about do you like doing these things sometimes what do you like about it? I like to turn men on I must do a pretty good job because they pay me a lot. Do you ever have any sex that's not paid for? Is that a proposal? No. It's what we psychiatrists call a question. Yes. Yes what? Yes, I do. For men that turn me on. What sort of men turn you on? Mature, doctorly type, like you. Are you sexually attracted to me? Yes. Are you? Attracted to you? Mm-hmm. Yes. But then this isn't a social visit, is it? You've come here for help, and my job is to offer you emotional assistance. How about some sexual assistance? Do you want to fuck me? Oh, yes. Well, why don't you? Because I'm a doctor and... Fucked a lot of doctors. And I'm married. Fucked a lot of them, too. Don't you think we're getting off the point? Do you mind if I take off my coat? No. Do a thing like that. Well, because of the size of that cock in your pants. That was great. I love, I, just, I love the line, I'm a hooker, and I've done most of the bad things you just read about. Yeah. That's a great line. So she's sort of she's really sexy in the black necklace, there's a thunderstorm outside as well, so it's all really torrid and um ramping up the tension. Yeah, with the music um, swirling and then the thunder's cracking and she's like I feel like she's telling the story almost like a ghost story. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. She's really, she's she really sells it. She's great, and she's um, you know, that's one of my arguments against the whole misogyny thing. I feel like she completely owns her sexuality throughout the film, and the only times that you see her, she, so she's a hooker. This this character is a sex worker. The only time you see it in a sexual light is when she takes her clothes off to 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 get where she needs to yeah. be. Do you know what I mean? She's not um, being objectified in any way, as far as I'm I think concerned. The, the only bit of, apart from the man being a bit victim blaming the cop, the only bit of misogyny really is, I feel like he didn't need to give her um, a sex disease at the beginning as well. I feel like it was just, she was already going to die. He didn't need to say she was going to die with syphilis. I found, yeah, yeah, I don't know, I don't know how I feel about that, I feel like it, it was interesting, I feel like it really sticks out like a sore thumb as well, because it's such a, it's such a dirty, sort of very real yeah. issue that would, that would happen to someone, so for it to pop up in a very overly stylized thriller, it does really, it really stands out, doesn't it, you go, oh, fuck it. Yeah. I just took it as a, to be honest, I just, I just saw it as like a punchline to this, you know, she thinks, oh, I've met this guy, and it's great, and, you know, she's like, He's leaving a note, isn't she, for him? And then I think I just... it's 
it's only the two of them together, the fact that she gets the disease and then she dies as a punchline yeah. and then nothing else happening. I think it's great. As her dying, yeah. nothing else happening, great. The two of them together just reads a bit weird. It is a bit weird. Uh, yeah, I think it is a bit weird. It's definitely worth like questioning. I think um I think for me in this film men don't come off well at all, whereas the women do. Yeah. Uh, I feel like it's just another it's just another example of how men are fucking shit. Yeah. You know, this guy took her home and had sex with her without telling her about his status and I feel like I feel like I feel like misogyny for me is if if the woman comes out of that looking bad, but she doesn't. She comes out of that, and you've you've got the the sympathy is always with her. Yeah. So I feel like for for me, that's why that doesn't really come across as misogynistic. Yeah, and I'd really. still rather be those the women in this film. Yeah. Like every time they yeah, still get the yeah. better roles, they get the better moments, better outfits, better outfits. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah so we we believe that she we believe that liz has managed to to successfully seduce dr elliot dummy because she goes off to powder and knows aka look through his files look through his address book and he starts to undress whilst looking at himself in the mirror lit up by the thunder and lightning mm-hmm. so let's believe that they're about to get it on and meanwhile outside peter is being soaked in the rain, watching through binoculars. So throughout this film, somebody's watching someone. Have you noticed voyeurism is part of the theme? Yeah. It. Um, and then as he gets closer to the window, peering in, we see that Bobby is actually in the room with Liz and she's in danger. And he, so Peter is the only person who could save her, but then suddenly somebody grabs him from behind. And that looks like Bobby as well. Yeah, I was very confused at this point. Totally, totally. And then Liz is in danger. She's about to be murdered by Bobby. And then a gunshot rings out. Someone shoots through the window and manages to save Liz's life. And we find out in the next scene, basically, that the other there were two people stalking Liz at the same time. One was Bobby and the other one was an undercover cop. Mm -hmm. Who is a woman who looks like Bobby. I, I like him in these films whenever the, the ego for the twist is that it's a woman so that's a trans woman it, they always have to like pull off a wig yeah just to make yeah. spell it out clearly to the audience yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it feels very scooby doo <laughs> it does yeah you pesky cis people <laughs> <laughs> yeah totally um so there we go, yeah. So then we get to the so a, a big echo of Psycho, isn't it? That terrible, that terrible last scene in Psycho where the Doctor explains all of uh, Norman's psychosis, but this is like the dress to kill version of that, which is all about what it means to be a transsexual person. <laughs> Did, um, just that opening line where she says, "What's wrong with the guy? He was a transsexual," just bluntly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. It's uh yeah. What did you make of this one, John? This the scene in particular or the whole film in general? Is it, it do I think the whole the, film? This scene. Just this scene. Just I mean scene. it's clumsy, but I mean it's forty years ago. So I mean Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. I think it is a product of its time. I th- I think for me I, we'll get we'll get to it later when we're talking about the film in general, but I think um it's very clumsy, isn't it? There's very harsh kind of language used that they didn't really need to use. Like, even 
the saying that his penis was erect, and so the other side took over to make anyone yeah. who made him masculine sexual. Like it's just complete misunderstanding and very heavy. Yeah. Well, for me, it seems like they're not they're not even describing a transsexual person. Well, they're not. This is my. But, yeah. This is, this is the point I was going to make. I think that you know, I mean, psychologist or anything like that, but. I think the the issues they're talking about are not what a transgender person feels. It's, it's not at all. Yeah. But yeah. my problem is, are we saying it's obviously like a split personality kind of thing? Is what yeah, it's more bad. personality disorder. I don't know if the people who've made this film knew that what they were describing was a split personality, yeah. or whether they thought that's what trans people. Yeah, yeah, and that's where it's weird to me. Yeah, no, it is. It's totally weird, and it's uh, for me. I think it's more likely that they just they didn't care. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I feel like they approached. I feel like Brian De Palma approached this as a storyteller and looking for the best way to tell a story. And whereas now we're more informed and we we want to find the best way to do it without actually fucking upsetting everyone. And you know, I, I'm I'm never someone who, who who thinks sacrifice a good story for the sake of appearing to be right on and, and uh, woke or anything like that. But as uh, it isn't really in me to want to just go out and upset people either. Yeah. Whereas back then, I feel like. I feel like I don't think Brian Tapan was was going right. This is really going to upset trans people. Fuck them. I don't think it was that. I think it just no. wasn't in the lexicon. It was it wasn't there to think that way. Do you know what I mean? People just didn't think that way. They didn't give it that much thought. No, I don't think um, any. I, I don't think there's ill intent. Yeah, at all. But you could see you could see why, especially at that time uh, when representation wasn't great, you could see why people were so fucked off by it. Mm. Yeah. I mean, me and Jonathan were having a conversation the other day about this kind of thing. Um, and it did make me think that, like, at the end of the day, there's so many gay people that are shown as the villains, like every Disney film ever and everything. Yeah. And quite often, in, like, you know, queer people are, are normally represented as villains. And yeah. I also love those characters, and I always wanted to be them when I grew up. So I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing for a trans person to be a villain. Mm. But it's just when it's the only representation and it's constant oh, yeah. and it's handed clumsily. And totally, and the other side of that as well, what you, what you, what you, you, you eventually get to is that you can't tell a story with a trans character in it that has anything other than positive traits, and then suddenly you, you, you're still telling a story that's a lie. Yeah, completely. You know, you, that's bad representation as well. So it's about finding the balance. Whereas back in 1980, there just was no balance whatsoever. Mm. None, no thought went into that. I at think all. the problem is is that. The reason why it's always that representation is because people haven't been haven't thought of a story that they thought was interesting to normal like to not normal, that's terrible. Um just cis, cisgendered <laughs> people. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. um where the the reveal of the sexuality is the only interesting because otherwise what's the trans person adding to the story other than the reveal? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There's no just trans character that just fills the role of just a person. Mm. You don't mm. feel the need to do that, which is where yeah. we have the problem. Yeah, totally. Um, I find... Does, does anyone else pick up on this at the end of the scene? She says, so what's going to happen to Dr. Elliot now? And there's like a swell of dramatic music. And then it goes to that other strange scene 
where Liz and Peter are talking about transsexualism. Which is so much worse than the last scene. Which is where, however, but I'll defend that scene more and I'll tell you why in a second. Yeah. But there's that swell of music and then there's that weird scene and then we go into the, the gothic horror dream in the mental hospital and it feels like it naturally went from, so what happens to Dr. Elliot now, straight into the dream and maybe yeah, they dropped the it scene. Yeah, it does feel tapped in. Yeah, it feels like they shoved it in the middle of it to show a more sympathetic view of trans, trans people. I, I think doesn't doesn't work. <laughs> it sort of doesn't because it's got a bit of a freak show element to it. But at the same time, I love the fact that she's telling the story, and you've got those conservative women drinking the green drinks on the next table, really upset by it. Yeah, that woman like... is horrified, and I think she knows, doesn't she, that she can hear it. Yeah, and I feel like that's kind of poking. I think that scene sort of pokes fun a little bit at people who would be horrified to hear about. The trans experience. That's what I took from that scene. I don't feel like it's, yeah. it's, it's a bit more balanced than the psychiatrist scene was. Yeah, I think that's that's where the intention is. And like that's what they but, do. But I think when you're describing still, a sex change operation and doing it to shock people. Yeah. It's a little bit ooh. Yeah, but I feel like I feel like the intention there was possibly a tiny bit more honorable than yeah. before. Yeah. But it's just using up using the language of the day, isn't it? So it's, it's not going to be what we're used to hearing now. What do you think of that scene, John? No, I like it. I, again, I think it's kind of... I don't think it's played to shock the audience. I think it's played for the audience to laugh at the other people in the restaurants and their reaction. Being shocked. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, to be fair, if it was me... Oh. Go on. Go on. Sorry, I was just going to say, if it was me and I was having a discussion about sex reassignment surgery and I saw someone looking disgusted, I'd probably start using that language as well, just to really piss them off. Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, So, yeah, I feel like that's kind of a more human take on it than the psychologist scene. Yeah. But, again, it just still uses that language that was very much normal back then. Hmm. So, obviously... That's not going to age well at all. <laughs> you see, there's some men and women, too, who think they're born in the wrong body. They're called transsexuals. And all they want to do is have their sex changed. How do you do that? Well, if you're a man that wants to become a woman, you take female hormones. What do they do? Well, your skin softens, you grow breasts, and you don't get hard anymore. Right. Sure, you want to know about this? Yeah, yeah, it's giving me some uh, wonderful new ideas for a science project. I mean, instead of building a computer, I could build a woman out of me. Great idea. In that case, I'll give you all the details. The next step is surgery. A, um, let me see if I can remember the exact word Levy told me. Oh, yeah, panectomy. Hmm. What's that? Oh, you know. They take your penis and slice it down the middle. Yeah, yeah, that's um, what I thought it was. Then, um, castration, plastic reconstruction, and the formation of an artificial vagina, a vaginoplasty to those in the know. And I, uh, I thought Ellie just put on a dress. 
Oh, he did. And a wig, too. But you see, that's no good in bed when you got to take everything off. What's going to happen to him now? Well, first he has to recover from the gun wound. And then if he's ever sane enough to get out of Bellevue, they'll try him. And guess who's the star witness? You. Right. Something I'm really looking forward to. Well, I think I'm going to stick with my computer. So then we get into the gothic horror uh, dream section at the end um, with the nurse who's got this sort of gothy makeup on and the <laughs> lingerie under her, under her outfit. I am. Under her nurse's I like that scene as well. So, <laughs> I bet you do. I bet you do. I am so <laughs> offended by her. <laughs> Why? Because she's wearing, wearing underneath her sexy nurse uniform, sexy suspenders, and she's wearing flats. Yeah. That is disgusting. Why isn't she wearing hooker heels like a white stiletto pump? Definitely. No, you are quite right. You're quite right. There should have been protests about that. Definitely. Yeah, that's Um, that's offensive. Because she was gorgeous as well. Yeah. So she's attacked by Dr. Elliot, who then um, starts to undress her whilst there's a gaggle of slobbering, crazy lunatics who are sort of stood watching from the balconies above. Nightmare in Elm Street weird... style. It's so scary. It's horrible. It's really horrible. Do you not think? Um, Sorry, I think I spoke over you then. No, yeah, I think you're right. I think it is. It's got that kind of um, Freddy Krueger's mom vibe to it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. They lifted it. Um, uh, and then, yeah, so Dr. Elliot escapes. And then next thing we find Liz in the shower at Kate's house. And she's naked and it's slow motion and it's like a carbon copy of the opening scene. It's also just like Carrie as well. Anyone else notice? No. So this film begins and ends in exactly the same way as Carrie. Ah. Um, oh, so yeah, the shower. Ends with the shower scene. Yeah. And then ends with the, night- ends with the nightmare with the girl springing up out of her sleep and uh, screaming in bed. So it's exactly the same as Carrie. Um. So yeah, I love this bit though because I love the bit with the where you see the offensive flat shoes stood outside the bathroom door, yeah. and, then, and then you suddenly realise that the shoes are empty. <laughs> yeah, did um once again I don't think they understand how showers work because she had the lovely curly hair and there was so much steam and I think her hair would have been frizzed to death. That's true. That's very true. Yeah. It's, it's nightmare logic, though, isn't it? So it was a dream, so it doesn't count. Well, yeah, and uh, well, there's the um the lights that are outside the window. She's yeah. your lights looking in through the, through the bathroom window. Yeah, but Teddy was like, I'd come in the room at this point, and he was going, "What's with those lights?" And I was like, "I, I don't know. They don't make sense. It's very <laughs> stylized." And I was like, "I think when we see the blade come in, the blade's gonna flash," and it did. Yeah, and yeah. then it was a dream sequence, and I was like, "Makes sense." Yeah, totally, totally. So yeah, that's it. It ends with a sort of operatic kill when Nancy Allen's having a throat cut. But then we realise it's a dream and uh, she will be forever haunted by the experience. Cut to final credits and Pino Donaggio's wonderful score again. Um, and that's the end of it, yeah. So, Do we think that Ro- uh, Robert escaping, do we think that's real or do we think that's the nightmare, part of the nightmare? I, I, got, the, I got the impression it was all part of the nightmare because I feel like yeah. that isn't a realistic mental hospital setting. Either. It was very over-stylized. Yeah. yeah, which made it feel like that was part of the overstylized of the shower scene as well. 
Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I mean, to be fair though, I wish it wasn't a dream and he just kept it in. <laughs> yes, it should just ends up at the throat being cut. Because I think that would have been a much more interesting nihilistic ending. <laughs> yeah, no, mm. totally. Totally. But um yeah. Well, you know, it's nice that she survives, I think, as well. Because she's a survivor, isn't she? Yeah, yeah, and she's a great character, but I don't know, I just like yeah. people die. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so I think for me, just to kill, when I was looking back at it, I was thinking it's essentially a film about three women. Um, it's about Kate, bored housewife, shoved into the sidelines by her husband. It's about Liz, a sex worker, written off as nothing but a whore, and Bobby, a woman whose very existence is denied to the point where she's driven to psychotic rage. Mm-hmm. That was the, that was the way I was sort of seeing it. Um, and I was thinking about the all the misogyny stuff and the fact that it's you know women in peril. Um, but then um, I was thinking that like. Our sympathies do lie with them throughout. Kate portrays as a vulnerable and human and impulsive. Liz is portrayed as resourceful, a go-getter, and someone who's done her best with the hand she's been dealt. And women are repeatedly seen as each other's saviour throughout the film as well. So even though, sadly, Liz is too late to save Kate, she's in fact, you know, she, she, who stays behind. And then at the end, um, Liz is saved by a woman because it's Betty Luce, the undercover cop, who shoots Bobby. So you know what I mean. So so the, the the day isn't always saved by a man throughout it. It's you know I feel like the women are quite these sort of look out for each other. They're autonomous way. characters that are yeah fleshed out. I think there's plenty wrong with it, but it is also plenty wrong with it from a modern lens. Mm. And I can yeah. see problems that even back then I can see problems that people have with it, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's like malice. Yeah. Yeah, I don't see. I don't think it was the work of an evil man who wanted to have all trans people stoned and burned. You know, I don't think it's that. But you can definitely. It's one of those films where I can totally understand where the protest came from. I do get it totally. I like. I think it's made, but the time it's made is a perfectly understandable excuse. I don't like when people say things are like, "It's a really nice looking film and it looks good," and that's a defense for it to be offensive because that doesn't slide mm-hmm. with me. Well, no, and I think I think it's good to discuss it and not, you know what I mean. I think it's, I think it's 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 good to not throw a film out for being purely offensive. I, f- I feel like you shouldn't write a film off that has problematic elements. No, you shouldn't then write it off and say nobody should ever watch this ever again. But uh, by the same token, I don't think you should you should play out uh, play down the elements that people are offended by either because they are there and they're there to be discussed. I don't know. I think you look at anything with twenty twenty. Um glasses on and you're going to find problems with Everton. I mean, probably what at the time, was it offensive? Probably not that offensive, but is it offensive now? Well, definitely. <laughs> Everton's yeah. offensive now. Well, I think it was. I think I think there were plenty of... It was very offensive then, when it, yeah. When it came out, um, the same people who were um, protesting about um, cruising uh, would have had an issue with this as well. Um, well is it, it interesting to worry about that? Brian De Palmer only did this film because he couldn't get the rights to make cruising. I love that. I absolutely love that fact. I love the fact that it was born from a really queer place and it makes me mm. it makes me really it makes me wonder what a Brian De Palmer version of cruising would have looked like. I know. I'd love to see that film. <laughs> Although to be fair, I feel like William Freak can probably had probably I don't know if it would have been a bit too clean. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, I feel like William Friedkin probably would have would have would have treated the story with a bit more care than Brian De Palma would have. I think Brian De Palma would have gave us a very glossy, very sexy film, whereas I feel like William Friedkin, for all his faults, did sort of get in there and get his hands dirty a bit more and and get to know the yeah. scene more before he made it. Um, Grittier, Grittier, yeah, yeah, that's the word, yeah, yeah, um, definitely. Well, um, I would definitely like to but see yeah. Brian Palmer's version of Cruising. Oh my god! And the fact that he wrote a script of it as well, I'm dying to see the screenplay. If there's anyone out there who has a copy of the screenplay, please send it to me. If people wanted to be offended about its poor portrayal of mental health issues, I could understand that. Because for <laughs> yeah. me, that's what this film is about. I don't really see it as a film about a transgender person. I see it more. It's more like for me. It's more like Split. It's about someone with. Yeah, and he just didn't think... know how to treat it then at the time. So that's why I think people are directing the, the anger at it, and that's fair enough. People can be angry, but I think it, some of it is misplaced. I think it's it's true that what they're showing isn't a reflection of that, and that's what maybe not even what their intention was. But I think yeah. it, there's no denying that it is that, and it is conjuring those images, whether it means to or not. Yeah, yeah. You are making, you're putting that image on screen of, you know, of the author intent doesn't always mean that the end product's what they intended. I don't think they maliciously meant anything, but I do think that there is definitely stuff to criticize. Did you see the, uh, it's funny reading back on the, um, the, the protests from the, the women against violence in porn. Oh my God. They said, <laughs> if, if this film succeeds, killing women may become the greatest turn on of the 80s. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, but they were completely campaigning about it um, and saying how bad it was. And then they also brought up that it was about a transgender person, but then described him as a transgender man. And I was like, no. Yeah. No. <laughs> Well, you the, don't even understand what you're angry about. Well, that's it. But uh, but then it was it, back then again. I think it was probably a big learning curve for people that it, like the stuff that we that we are educating ourselves on now. Like say for the past ten years, back then they just wouldn't even bothered because those that yeah. group of people was still so marginalised. They, they described them as it. They said the distorted image of a psychotic male transvestite makes yeah. all sexual minorities appear sick and dangerous. Um. That's the thing is that I think that those people didn't actually care about that issue and they just brought it in to push their issue. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, but that's but that isn't that always the way. So everyone, yeah. the piece, the person who shouts the loudest on social media about various issues has usually got their own agenda that they're trying to they're trying to. Pass yeah, completely. On. I think yeah. it shows you like a good um, mix of when there's outrage to be had and when we use outrage for yeah. our own. Totally. My my big queer reaction to this film is um I, I noticed the themes are like, you know, one woman lives a double life and oppresses her true sexual nature, which which a queer audience can identify with. And then that's that's Kate and then Liz uh, is a is someone who embraces her sexuality but is condemned for it and considered to be on a lower tier of society because of it. And I felt like those are the themes that queer audiences can identify mm-hmm. with on, on a more positive level than with Bobby. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And uh, so this has always been, this has also been referred to as uh, a prime example of an American giallo, um, which I completely agree with. I was watching The Case mm-hmm. of the Bloody Eyes 
Hearts. Case of the Bloody Iris from 1972 the other week and the first murder in that is a beautiful woman in an elevator and it immediately made me think of, of Dress to Kill. Um, did you two spot the jello elements of this film as well? I think stylistically it just feels jello anyway. Just yeah. like, I don't know. I think it's just because whenever something's so beautifully shot with like swirl of music and then you've got violence on top of it, it that's just feels jello to me. Yeah. Do you agree, John? Yeah, definitely. It's got all it's got most of the tropes, hasn't it? The black gloves, the you know, yeah. the people someone being stalked, women being stalked, women in pedal. Yeah, yeah. And it's also got the sort of psychosexual vibe to it as yeah. well. So it's all about sex, yeah. it's all about sexual yeah, as well. Um, I know Argento uses a lot of art. And I think most mm. of his films have got a connection to them as well, haven't these? And you've got a scene in the music in them here, so got a bit of that yeah, as well. Yeah. yeah, she's in the white box gallery. Well, not white box, but she's a big white gallery, which is very birds with the crystal plumage. Um, and then you've got all of the sort of slow dreamlike shots following the characters around these ornate interiors. It's the big emphasis on style, isn't it? So mm. you can't look at the, the women, especially without seeing what they're wearing, you know. Yeah, yeah. they got some deep focus shots as well in some of his films, doesn't he? I know there's a couple in um, All Flies on Grey Velvet, I think, I'm pretty yes, sure. Yeah, there is, yeah, there is definitely. Um, yeah, and the sort of the sort of the uh, gender fuck reveal at the end is very similar to like Blades in the Dark as well. Yeah, did you notice that? Steve? I don't know much preferred that version. Yeah, yeah, me too. That was a Blades in the Dark is like less offensive than this. It really is. <laughs> totally. Um, but yeah, there are American Jelly out there that I think we should cover on the podcast as well. I think we should do Eyes of Laura Mars at some point because that's mm. so stylish and fabulous as well. Um, but yeah, so it's uh, it's had plenty of plenty of um, praise heaped on it as well as derision. Um, I took to Twitter today, but I'd left it a bit later. We haven't got many responses yet. Well, Slasher Trash said it was an awesome psychosexual thriller with one foot in Jello territory and the other in Slasher. And Doctor Butcher MD said it's a great movie, a favourite of mine, but conversely more offensive to transgender people, as it leapfrogs off Psycho to explicitly connect a trans identity to violence, which is not great. Um, although I would disagree that Psycho was about a trans person. It's the same yeah. argument again, though, isn't it? Yeah. And never, with Sounds really. of the Lambs. Yeah, yeah. Sounds of the Lambs was a bit softer in its approach because they kind of made the point that transsexualism isn't linked to psych- psychotic behaviour or something. They did that as a line in the film. So they did try a little bit more there. I think one thing to say is that those elements were in Psycho and along with everything else, he's kind of made a film that took elements of Psycho and then revved them up. Yeah. Yeah. So naturally it's just revved up the transgendered element in Psycho. Yeah, totally. Just made it more stylized, that's his approach. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, plenty to enjoy here for the for the uh, especially for the queer audience. There's loads to get you to get you talking, get you arguing, debating, um, but loads to, to make you a very happy queer horror viewer as well, I think. Oh, so just to add to it, one of the things I found interesting um was that Apparently in the script, the original opening was a man shaving his body hair, then his pubes, and then he cuts his own cock off with a straight razor. Oh. A bit on the nose. Uh, 
Yes, a little yeah. bit. It was Brian De Palma's version of wanting to um wanting to tell it from the trans person's point of view. Um which you know <laughs> can you I, I shudder to think, but wouldn't that be interesting to find out how that panned out as a film? You know, I'd like to I would like to read that. I think that'd be interesting. Just to see. It would be a very good film to do this from a trans person's point of view, Imagine. but not when you don't handle it very well. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah um, but there we go. Um, it's a film about sexual identity, sexual repression, cruising for cock, um, and fabulous outfits. So um, if you're a queer horror viewer and you haven't seen Just Kill, then put it on your list. Um, Say that again. One hundred percent, I agree. I definitely okay. recommend. Um, all right, cool. Uh, so yeah, please do let us know what you think of the film and what you thought of our take on it as well. We'd, we'd really like to hear from you. You can get us on Twitter. Uh, Jonathan Butler, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, Cthulhu five hundred two. And Stephen Moore. HST ninety nine. And you can get me at Johnny Larkin. Uh, we'll be back hopefully in a couple of weeks with some more lockdown madness from Screaming Queens but until then thank you for listening bye bye